Club.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And welcome back to MCU.html. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And we're here to discuss the Marvel one-shots. Yes, now, I know we said we were going to discuss Captain America the Winter Soldier, but seeing as all of these fall at different points prior to Captain America the Winter Soldier, we thought it would be a good idea to discuss them first. And they actually, some of them have a much more interesting story behind them than the actual segment itself. True. So... For those of you who don't know, the Marvel one-shots were a series of shorts that were designed to go on the DVDs to help kind of flesh out some of the mistakes, plot holes, etc. Comics have been doing this for a million years. Those of you who follow along with X's for Podcasts are familiar with X-Men Classic, where once X-Men had become the powerhouse franchise success it had become, they wanted to find a way to publish the original stories for the digital comic market and before there were large hardcover and softcover collections released every month. So they released X-Men Classic. In order to make it feel like there was a reason to buy it if you already owned the issues, they inserted additional pages of story, oftentimes to clear up anything that had been retconned or help insert a little bit more character and personality into characters that were very two-dimensional. That's kind of what these are here to do. Ultimately, do they work? Do they not work? That's for everybody to decide on their own. I think it's kind of hit or miss. How about you, Kevo? Yeah, I think there's good and bad in all of these. I think I found certain things work better with the one-shots, like bridging the ending of The Incredible Hulk with the rest of the franchise and reconciling Tony Stark's appearance there. That makes a lot more sense with its one-shot. However, I am going to complain about the constant reuse of footage in that one, but we'll get to that. Well, not just that one, but then others as well. Then there's other ones like A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Thor's Hammer that really does absolutely nothing to further along the plot of the franchise. It's fun, it's cool, and frankly, it's a DVD extra, so you shouldn't expect too much. But in comparison to the other four, it just doesn't give much. And that was supposed to be the intent of these one-shots from the beginning. As you mentioned earlier, one-shots in the comics, that actually is specifically where they got the name for this series from, was to be one-shot stories that helped further and expand the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Apart from one minor reference to something else from the Marvel Universe, apart from the name of the gas station, there's nothing even connecting it to the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So as far as credits go for the first four Marvel one-shots, the team is pretty much consistent throughout. Every one of these is written by screenwriter Eric Pearson, who is a writer who came up through the Marvel Studios screenwriting program. He became a Marvel script doctor, he did uncredited work on Ant-Man, and he wrote the first draft of Thor Ragnarok. Uh, the director on the first two is credited as someone named Latham. I am under the impression that this is a pseudonym because I cannot find any professional credits for anyone by that name otherwise. And the next two after that are actually directed by co-president of Marvel Studios, Luis D'Esposito. So I kind of wonder if that's who Latham is and they weren't sure how cool it was to have the co-president of the studio film the first two. I don't know. That's all conjecture. I just know that 
Latham probably is a pseudonym for someone. The first two of the one-shots, the score was done by Paul Oakenfield, of all people. Okay. And then the next two after that were done by composer Christopher Lennertz, who's known for a lot of parody movies like Meet the Spartans, Disaster Movies. He did the score for Sausage Party, the TV shows Supernatural and Gallivant, and actually returns to do the score for the Agent Carter television series, which is pretty cool. The final of these was directed by co-screenwriter of Iron Man 3, Drew Pierce, written and directed by him, and the music was by uh, the film's composer, Brian Tyler. We open with the Marvel one-shot that looks so cheap because the second Marvel one-shot was so expensive, apparently. And what's disappointing is the consultant isn't anything really new. The consultant himself is Tony Stark. And this is Coulson and Sitwell, probably the two agents we've gotten to know best at this point, sitting in a diner talking, trying to help us understand how to bridge the first three or four Marvel Cinematic Universe films together. Mm. It doesn't do much for me. It's great to see these characters get a little bit of personality, but I don't think they get enough of a unique personality that justifies creating this. I think I like a lot about it, but I think a lot of it is sloppy. One of my notes specifically was, wow, they are talking really fast. They were clearly trying to pack as much into this one shot as they could, and that stood out to me. It also made how glaringly incongruous certain things like the clips they use from the incredible hulk were with the rest of the franchise when we see ross again in civil war he's far more composed than he seems in this bar this tony still feels incongruous with what we've seen in the other films so far but at least it's an attempt to explain why tony would be in that bar in the first place which i did i liked the explanation behind that and i even appreciate all that i really do but this doesn't feel like the way to do it This felt cheap and sloppy and like no one explained to them how to handle exposition. It feels very quickly deliver all of the information so that nobody can get confused. And this really throws a wrench into the notion that Iron Man 2, Thor, and the Incredible Hulk all happened in the same week. I don't, I I don't feel like it's possible. I don't think they even care if you do. I honestly think at this point, they really weren't sure of exactly how the Marvel Cinematic Universe continuity was going to shake out, and they were just hoping for a best-case scenario. Mm. They couldn't know that this was going to turn into what it turned into. I have this sinking feeling that until Civil War really cemented things for them in a strong way, they were probably thinking, this is the movie that sinks it. Every movie. They were thinking, oh God, oh God, this is it. We've done it. We've broken the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And they've come pretty close. Age of Ultron is a real rough experience. And Iron Man 2 is no joyride, but I think they were really just concerned with continuing to make material here. I don't know that they had the big picture quite in mind yet. I get that. I really do. Something I do like about this one, though, is getting to spotlight S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Sitwell a little bit more. He's a character that appeared in a minor way in Thor, in a slightly larger way in The Avengers. He appears in a few episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then is... A major secondary character in The Winter Soldier, who is revealed to be a Hydra agent. He, for several years of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, was a really great foil to Coulson, and therefore a really excellent choice for that reveal. I really liked the line at the beginning of him saying, I do a great Patsy. I don't know if they had any idea at that time that that was where they were going to have this character go, but it does retroactively make the fact that he is 
a double agent, essentially. Very interesting. I actually really didn't like that exchange, to be honest, the Patsy stuff. For a four-minute segment where you are punching me in the face with so much exposition, you don't have time to do bits about how much you love Sorkin's circular dialogue. It just didn't fit the time constraints as cute a moment as it was. Ultimately, it is made stronger by the fact that Sitwell turns out to be Hydra, but in and of itself, in this moment, it really bothers me in four minutes where you don't have 20 seconds to waste on one joke. I get that. I really do. Without the reveal of him being a secret patsy, it is a lot less funny and giving characterization to a character that we don't get to sit down with a lot, which unfortunately is a lot of the characters that we meet in the one-shots. A funny thing happened on the way to Thor's hammer, I guess, is an apt title if the funny thing is Coulson was able to do things that make absolutely no sense with the rest of his character. If we're saying that there is this unbelievably out of out of universe moment, it's so strange because it feels like a generic action film. It doesn't feel like a moment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It feels like this even could have been a cute moment on another show. It's completely Coulson wish fulfillment. It just doesn't feel like this makes sense in his narrative here. I don't even feel it's fully incongruous is the thing. I guess, I I mean, I don't feel it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible that he is able to do this, that he has this training, but its purpose is highly questionable. I don't think it adds anything to the narrative of the MCU or, frankly, Coulson because I said I buy that he can do this, I didn't need to be shown that he can do this. He's a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, so I would expect him to have some sort of combat training. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been asked to babysit Tony Stark in Iron Man 2. So why do I need to see him randomly beat up some convenience store robbers? Especially because it's so generic. It's a convenience store robbery. There's nothing about it that makes it uniquely Coulson, nothing about it that makes it uniquely S.H.I.E.L.D., nothing about it that makes it uniquely Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's no superpowers. It's special agent in a convenience store, stops a robbery, quips, and leaves. And I'm not saying that you can't do that, but you need to earn it. Literally, the only, only, only thing in this entire short film that connects it to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, other than the mcu original character of phil colson is the name of the gas station being roxon which was not established for the first time here was actually established for the first time in iron man 2 so this is referencing something that does already exist in the mcu but that is the only thing in this film that's just really so friggin weird It does feel like they were trying to say, hey, everybody, you should like Agent Coulson. You should like him. Look what a badass he is. And I get it. Clark Gregg is charming and Coulson's a lot of fun. But this does not add anything. And I believe that's what these were meant to do. This enhances nothing. And it is what they were meant to do. They were specifically introduced um, to add characterization for Phil Coulson. Clark Gregg actually uh, was told in the same phone call that they would be doing these one shots that he was going to die in the Avengers which, you know, must have been a very heavy phone call, but he got a TV show out of it in the end, so can't really complain. I just ultimately don't feel like I enjoyed a funny thing happened on the way to Thor's hammer, but I don't feel that this one costing as much as it did to make the consultant as cheap as it had to be 
really uh, it wasn't justified they could have pulled back on this and put a little bit more money into the consultant instead all right and now we have uh what is the first nearly damn feature length marvel one shot item 47 i really thought this one could have been fun if it had been Something that went anywhere, yes. but completely encapsulated. This does nothing for me. Completely encapsulated. This is kind of like an annoying waste of my time. Jesse Bradford and Lizzie Kaplan's were big gets to not do anything with them. Mm. It feels really, again, other than the fact that it is a Chitauri weapon that they are using, nothing about this feels Marvel. Yeah, that and again, Sitwell, who is an original MCU character. So it's not fully connected to the MCU. And like you said, Jesse Bradford and Lizzie Kaplan, um, you made a comment while we were watching it that seeing their faces out of nowhere in one of these one shots really takes you out of the moment knowing that they are decent gets for something like this. And I really felt the same way. I remember we hadn't seen this until the night before Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. premiered. And we were even like, oh, man, this feels like it, it watching this. It felt like a pseudo pilot or a test balloon for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as a show. And I remember us wondering, oh, are we going to see these characters again? No, they 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 did this whole huge introduction and having these Bonnie and Clyde type characters who are randomly conscripted into S.H.I.E.L.D. And then they're just never seen and as far as I know, mentioned again. And I think part of the difficulty with that for me is that this feels in many ways completely out of the realm of storytelling we're used to from Marvel. This is just sort of a generic heist job. It isn't even a stylized heist job like an Ant-Man. It's just super generic. Smash and grab, yeah. Although, it's important to note that this is the first one-shot that takes place after Coulson dies. They reference that they miss him, and instead Sitwell's a badass in the hotel. Yeah, very specifically, yes. I also have to say, while I really enjoy the direction by Luis D'Esposito, I think this is my least favorite as far as writing goes for the Marvel one-shots. It's just really awkward, and so much of this shit is randomly gendered. Why does Lizzie Kaplan have a pink ski mask instead of them both being black? And then the hotel scene between the two of them is probably one of the most sexually charged moments that we've had in the MCU since The Incredible Hulk. Absolutely. I was really, that was some aggressive heterosexuality. Uh, if I have to pick something that I like from this, it does establish why Sky slash Daisy Johnson would so easily be allowed to join S.H.I.E.L.D. This does set a precedent for random civilians being conscripted. It does, however, set up how S.H.I.E.L.D. was able to be infiltrated by HYDRA so easily yeah. then. They're giving out S.H.I.E.L.D. badges to every idiot, but they're refusing one to Tony Stark. Think about that. They don't think Tony Stark should join the Avengers, but they're letting anyone who stole some technology and was able to rob a bank and blow up a building with it onto S.H.I.E.L.D. This is going to be absolutely the kind of stuff that makes me believe, yeah, okay, Hydra could have infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> also, um, I don't know if that's always how slow I guess you're just what I needed is, but I really feel like they must have slowed it down for these credits. I don't think they slowed it down for the credits. I think watching the song play out against a slow credit sequence dragged it down. Uh, I was really afraid you were going to say that. Yeah, it hurt. It did. I love Agent Carter. I have some issues with the extensive opening of the Cap flashback. 
again, so many of these one shots use so much footage from something else. It's only like 40 seconds, but it's enough to bug me for some reason. I think because there's only 15 minutes of this film for there to be 40 seconds borrowed from somewhere else feels cheap. Although the most egregious offender was certainly the consultant. I actually liked the inclusion. I thought it was kind of cute. I appreciated that they kept it down to under a minute. And I'm pretty sure that they put a fresh coat of paint over this with a new score by the guy who does the score for Agent Carter. I would have to triple check on that, but it definitely doesn't sound like anything from the Alan Silvestri score from the film. And in many ways, this one does feel the most polished, the highest quality, the cleanest, the brightest, the shiniest. This one feels like it should spawn a TV show. Mm, Yeah, again, it feels like sort of a test pilot for the potential of the show. However, it's really important to note that there is an enormous amount of this that has nothing to do with the TV show. I can't figure out how they can possibly be the same thing. Yeah, I uh, it's it's been a while since I watched, but I'm fairly positive that it would be really hard for this to transition smoothly from one into the other. Because it actually feels like the TV show is in many ways a better version of this decompressed over more time. Yeah, I see that. I do think there are a lot of really nice touches. I thought one of the best touches was something you noted about the photo of Steve. Yeah, the photo that she keeps of Steve is actually his pre-transformation photo. As far as she is aware, the only one in existence. She chooses to carry that photo with her instead of any of the plethora of Captain America promotional stills. That's a very specific choice. And I think part of it is because she knows him. That's from her time with him. That's not Cap. That's Steve. I do want to jump into the action, the meat of this one. Because this is probably the the most real to the Marvel Cinematic Universe action of any of them. Yeah, okay, I see that. I felt like this Peggy adventure could have been a Peggy and Howard and Steve adventure from Captain America. Mm. I do think maybe... Okay, so there's this one part where Peggy takes down a guy and she's like, tell me how many people are here, and he's like, four, and she's like, including you, or no, and he's like, yeah, and then a a fifth guy shows up and he's this huge fucking beast of a guy. And he's like choking her and she manages to stab him in the leg and then three quick kick punches and he's unconscious. I love Peggy Carter. That guy went down real fast. Yes, I was enjoying it up until that moment because of what a struggle it was. It was really important to show that for how badass Peggy is, they weren't taking it easy on this character in any way. You can really see in her face what an effort it is, this battle. It does then end very quickly, and I can make allowances knowing that they only had about 15 minutes. It's still not great, but, you know. But, you know. So after Peggy dispatches the largest man in the 1940s, we are treated to her return back to S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, which does not go the way she was hoping it would go with Bradley Whitford, the terrible boss. Yeah, unfortunately... You know, the first time I watched this, I really enjoyed the ending, and how wrong he was when he tells her she's going to answer for her attitude and the way that Howard Stark swoops in to save the day. But I was really, really paying a different kind of attention this time. And it 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 is sort of obnoxious to realize that if she didn't have a rich white male friend in a high place, she really would have probably been let go, even though she is a stunning agent and didn't deserve it. Yeah, it drips of entitlement and privilege on Howard's part. 
And frankly, she's been rotting in that job for nine months, as she pointed out. So why is Howard only just now jumping in to be like, oh, you get this amazing, amazing promotion. Where has he been for a year other than lounging around looking at ladies in bikinis? Being Howard Stark. Yeah, pretty much. It was fun to see Dum Dum Dugan, obviously, because he's a character that we both love. But once again, it's just shoving these characters in to insert oppressive heterosexuality. It's, you know, a funny, cute gag. But you found time for a gag about bikinis in a Marvel one-shot. And I don't think we've still heard a single breath of an actual queer character in the MCU. Not through yet. Not through yet. I feel like All Hail the King is the one shot that we kind of spoke about the most or touched on the most. I think it's the one that at least, while the least one shotty, is the most directly Marvel Cinematic universe Okay. In that it directly deals with an actual Marvel Cinematic Universe character that isn't like a background agent, that isn't a brand new character created just for this who never appears again. This one is strictly about the bad guy from Iron Man 3. Okay, yeah, and it provides a lot of, while not necessarily vital, um, specific and significant information about what happens to a character after their film ends. Which I don't think we get a lot of those. One of the things that we've heard is that Michael Keaton will be reprising his role from Homecoming and Far From Home. And I think that might be one of the only villains who just like pops back up out of nowhere other than like Loki. It took Red Skull like 17 films to make another appearance. And a different actor. Yeah, Hugo Weaving said that he didn't want to play bad guys anymore because it was like messing his kids up. And I really, really applaud him for sticking to his guns and saying, no, I don't want to play the most unbelievable evil representation of Nazi terrorism in a climate where people are actually trying to be Nazis again. Yeah, the difference between the character Hugo Weaving had to play versus Ben Kingsley or Sam Rockwell, who we saw here again, or Tom Hiddleston, uh, you know, Red Skull is just pretty much straight up fucking evil. Like, there's no cute, fun, anything. Red Skull is just fucking evil, and you can't really play anything else with that. Speaking of evil and not really much you can play with that, I don't love some of the prison stuff here. There's a lot of implications about prison life that we really, we should be evolved past laughing at as a culture. Prison is nothing that we should be mocking, and I feel at times they took very gentle liberties, nothing egregious per se, but nothing I loved. Yeah, there were, you know, it was a very, very soft interpretation of what Seagate Penitentiary would probably actually be like in real life. I, it was more of an arrested development take than an Oz. And that's very significant when you're talking about prisoners at this level. It's a little bit too silly and fun and safe. And, Yeah, of course I'm gonna say it. The prison rape gags aren't fucking funny. It seems like there wasn't anything about actual rape, so I appreciate that. But Trevor's little, you know, we've all been to drama school. And then Sam Rockwell's boyfriend at the end. I'm pretty sure, based on all the stuff that we have watched so far, that is the closest that we have seen to any actual characters engaging in queer sex. And it's meant to be a joke. And I do want to point out the carelessness of making this some of the only queer representation in a Marvel Cinematic Universe film. We have endlessly discussed how 
Hammer is meant to be pathetic. So even if they want to say, no, Hammer is giving you queer representation, well, you gave us a bad guy who's a pathetic bad guy who isn't even good at being a bad guy. Great, thank you. You gave us the you gave us low rent Tony Stark. It's just not great. And we don't know that this is actually that Hammer is bisexual or gay or queer or pan or cute prison boy sexual. We just know that he's in this relationship. So it could even not be queer representation. And it could be something really kind of sinister and gross. But Marvel's lack of commentary on the state of their queerdom constantly leaves us in this position. As a matter of fact, the only other quote-unquote canonically queer character in Marvel that I can think of would be either Valkyrie or Hela. And they're both in the same movie and both of their references to queerness were cut. Now, both actresses have said they feel the character is queer, and I'm grateful for that. But we're still operating at a disadvantage here, where we're saying, well, there might be queerness if you look at it this way, upside down from the side. You know, ever since Eddie Redmayne said that thing about how he plays Newt Scamander in the Fantastic Beasts franchise as autistic, I've been thinking a lot about actor intent and the way that they play their characters, and how I feel it translates to screen. And I think it has to be more than just an actor saying, well, this is how I play my character. Donald Glover mentioned that he felt that Lando Calrissian is pansexual, and that's how he played the character in Solo. But that's not the same thing as actually writing in specific references, showing him flirting with both men and women, actually portraying it instead of just being a quote-unquote pansexual energy. As a pansexual man, Don Glover, if you want to call me up and get tips, pointers, <laughs> if you want to rehearse the kissing scenes together, you beautiful man, I am here for you. I just want to support you in becoming the greatest artiste you can, because you're already pretty great, and oh, you're so handsome. And it's really important to note, I appreciate the effort. I appreciate Don Glover saying, I'm playing my character as pansexual. I appreciate Tessa Thompson saying, she played Valkyrie as bisexual. But as we're going to find when we do get to Winter Soldier, Sam Wilson talks about being straight within five minutes of appearing on screen. It's not really a lot to say we could have these queer characters talk about that too. Problematically, oppressive heterosexuality aside, one of the things about this one shot is that it worked so hard to undo so much of Iron Man 3 yes. by creating an actual Mandarin who is somehow connected to the Ten Rings from Iron Man 1. As evidenced by having the shot of the dude whose face got burned and then he got paralyzed and killed by Stain. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but that's a lot of details. Yeah, we'll call him Thumbring. Burnface. Thumb, Thumbring Burnface. Thumbring Burnface. And then we meet a uh, white guy pinky ring. Yeah, white guy pinky ring with the tattoo. Uh, you know, Shane Black has gone on record as saying that he's fairly insulted by All Hail the King. He was specifically excluded from this, which is interesting considering he played the disembodied voice in Agent Carter. Anyway, this was specifically written and directed by his co-scripter, and he really strongly feels this was an attempt to backpedal against the backlash that there was over the Mandarin, and... You know, he's just sorry people hated his Mandarin so much. He wouldn't have done it if he thought people hated it and kind of is upset that he felt that this ha there has to be this pushback against his interpretation. And I can see what he means, especially when the dude is holding a gun on Trevor and says, consider this a lesson in what's real and what's not. Like, that's just so on the nose. 
and to make this big deal about how there really is a Mandarin, and then we don't see him. Yeah, this came out in February of 2014. Nico's birthday, actually. Happy birthday in 2014. Hey, what's up? And so that means it's been almost five years since this Marvel one-shot debuted, and we have heard nothing about this again. We not only don't see him in this, there's no follow-up, absolutely. Although, admittedly, we don't know enough about the Marvel Cinematic Universe tie-in comics. I do plan on rectifying that within the course of this series, but we'll get to that. I think that's an excellent idea. One of the things that I have found in doing all of this research is that there are a number of tie-ins that are not Marvel one-shots that are still considered at least semi-canonical. There's a car commercial starring Peter Parker. There was a series of shorts that featured Chris Hemsworth in character as Thor investigating after Age of Ultron in Australia. I would like to have a pair of shorts featuring Chris Hemsworth investigating things down under. Well, yes, there is that. But um, I'm going to round some of those up and see what's worth looking into and what's not. All right. So here's what we're saying. We think the TV universe might be too big to dig into, but there's a lot of Marvel out there that we want to at least look at. Nothing outside of the films should be necessary to understanding the films. But if it's out there and we can get our grubby little hands on it, well, let's grub it up. Yeah, basically. Unfortunately, though, after All Hail the King, this was the end of the Marvel one-shots. There wasn't one released in conjunction with The Winter Soldier, and James Gunn specifically said there, quote-unquote, wasn't room on the DVD for Guardians of the Galaxy, and then they just sort of stopped appearing and stopped being mentioned. There have been mentions over the years of potential ones. Drew Pierce said that he had written drafts for Sin and Crossbones, for Jessica Jones, and for Damage Control. Luis D'Esposito mentioned potential for Loki, Young Nick Fury, Black Panther, and Ms. Marvel as far back as July 2013. Kevin Feige mentioned the potential for Howard the Duck and Cosmo from Guardians, or Luis from Ant-Man. And it wasn't until October of 2017 that he finally stated that the one-shots just became too difficult once they started producing three films a year instead of two. He didn't rule out the potential for future ones. He'd spoken to the director of Thor Ragnarok, about a short featuring Meek and Korg. But I really see what he means. These were, these started to become very big budget considering they were merely DVD extras. There had been discussion of potentially showing them in theaters, but you already get so much when you go to an MCU film. They're all over two hours and they all have five credit scenes. I think it just would have become too much and I think that was better spent focusing on marvel netflix and focusing on doing more films instead i think at some point trying to balance four shows that culminated in a crossover on one network while trying to still run two shows that exist in the same universe on another network while developing runaways for hulu and cloak and dagger over at abc family which became freeform in the interim passing on several pilots including mockingbird and can't even think of the others also Having, what was it, a miniseries? Slingshot? Slingshot, yeah. You know, they wound up having so many cross products that it was really difficult for them to focus on these tiny little DVD extras. Because, I mean, let's fucking face it, who buys DVDs until the big box set comes out anymore? True. And I think what we ultimately found was that these weren't worth the effort that were being put in anyway. Well, until our box set comes out, Kevin, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. 
As always, you can check out Kevo's awesome coloring as well as our co-writing on Riot Squad, available at KidRiotComics.com, where we also have Capes and Boots, Riot Squad's sister book, as well as the first volume that started it all, available for free to read online. Check out our other amazing shows here on the Cage Club Network, as well as the multitude of other titles available. We have X's for Podcast, where along with our boyfriend Jonah and our best friend Kyle, Kevo and I take a look at the X-Men comic book franchise starting in the 1970s, as well as now and again, where with along with my best buddy Chris, I take a look at pop music through the lens of the Now That's What I Call Music Collections. You can always catch me being a thirsty thought on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, where I just about never have my shirt on. Okay. I think that covers it. Feel free to check us out on the road promoting our awesome comic book. If you're going to be at KatsuCon Awesome Con, or, and I know it's always off, but NYCC, you can't start getting excited about that too soon. No, not at all. Okay. Well, we'll see ya. Bye.